Let's open our Bibles to Jude. Our little epistle of Jude. And let's consider another verse or two before we call it a good day to have been in the house of the Lord. Let me read to you the fourth verse of the epistle of Jude. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, open the scripture to us that our eyes may see, our ears may hear, and our heart may understand that we might be converted by this text and put on notice as the... Apostle Paul warned the elders at Ephesus, let us be sober, let us be grave, and let us be vigilant, that we will always be ready to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints, even if we must take such a stand within our own body. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of this church and its cornerstone, and in whose name we pray, amen. The reason you have verse 3 in the epistle of Jude and why it was needful for Jude to write and exhort them to earnestly contend for the faith is because of verse 4, that there are certain men crept in unawares. Not that there would be, but in this case, that there were certain men crept in unawares. How do false brethren get into churches? How do they creep in? They creep in by professing and pretending to love Christ, and they get baptized. How do they do it unawares? The rest of the church doesn't figure them out. We can't tell by their profession that it's false. We can't tell by their hand that it's vain. We can't tell for a while. The saints should always practice charity, which means, according to 1 Corinthians 13, that we believe all things and we hope all things. So when someone comes to us and professes that they love Christ and they believe the truth that we believe, we believe them. When they do things that cause us to doubt that, we hope that they still do. Because charity tells us to believe all things and hope all things. But by good words and fair speeches, they deceive the hearts of the simple. Turn to Romans 16, where I can show you that verse that I partially quoted. Romans 16 And verse 17, this is earnestly contending for the faith, once delivered to the saints, by remembering verses like this. Romans 16, 17, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. False brethren do not come in among us and say, I prefer Satan to Jesus. How would you like to follow me to hell? False brethren come in and say, I love Jesus too. But by good words and fair speeches, they deceive the hearts of the simple. We are to measure everyone by one doctrine in verse 17. Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine. 
Doctrines is never, never plural in the Bible because there isn't plural doctrines. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Yes, yes, there is. There's Hebrews chapter 6 where it's talking about individual doctrines there of baptism, of repentance, of turning to good works, and of judgment to come. There in, in uh, Hebrews 6, there's not truth in the Bible. It's truth. Because truth is a whole of God's doctrines that make up the doctrine, the faith, that was once delivered to the saints. Look at Acts chapter 20, where we can see Paul's warning to the elders at Ephesus, which was a very sober warning. The last time he would see them, he called the elders together for this very sober warning. Acts chapter 20. And verse 28, follow this. They have all gathered themselves together. He is describing to them the ministry that he had among them. It began way back in verse 17. But I take up at verse 28 and I'll read four verses. And this is, this is what we ought to be taking heed to as well. This is why we have Jude verses 3 and 4. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn every one night and day with tears. Now, there may be some hyperbole in verse 31, but even if it's hyperbole, I want you to realize that the Apostle Paul was diligent with tears and frequency of reminding about false teachers. Some would come from the outside when Paul wasn't there, and some would arise in their own midst. And so this is a warning in the Bible. This is why we have Jude, verses 3 and 4, right here, because of verses like this. Do you know that in the book of Revelation, the first church addressed is the church at Ephesus. And while the Lord Jesus Christ did have somewhat against them because they had lost their first love, do you know what he commended them for? Yes! Yes, Charlie. They had tried the apostles and prophets and found them to be liars. Paul had set them up in good stead to be questioning men that came to them And the church at Ephesus years later was still practicing that, though they had lost their first love. Let me chase a short rabbit trail. We do not want to give up either. Doctrine or our first love. Let us always remember that. True doctrine cannot substitute for first love of Jesus Christ. It is not enough. The devils believe and tremble. They have the right doctrine. They know God. They know prophecy. They know that their time is coming where they will be tormented by the God of heaven and by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us always remember that. Because though Jesus Christ commended Ephesus for having good doctrine, for being faithful, for being diligent in their labors and for trying false apostles, he had somewhat against them and he was going to take the candlestick away from that church, though they had the right doctrine. We must have both. Right. Right. I'm, I fear saying what I want to say, lest anyone misunderstand me. I would rather only have 
of God's truth and love Jesus Christ with my whole heart than have a hundred percent of it and not love him. I didn't say hating the other 10%. I just said not having it. We don't know what percentage we don't have right now. We wait on him to show it to us. But I know one thing. We better have a first love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I said does not mean doctrine is not important to us, as I think everyone knows. We want 100%. We pray for 100%. We study for 100%. We want to earnestly contend for 100%. But we also don't want to compromise our love of Christ. If you cannot think that we have false brethren now, at least think that we'll have them someday. Because of the warnings of Jude, the warnings of Paul. It's just the way that it happens. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul warned the Corinthians, he was afraid of them, that if someone came preaching another Jesus, or another gospel, or another spirit, they might well bear with them. He was afraid that that church was so weak, that if they heard false Jesus, a false gospel, a false spirit, they would accept it. Because they were weak. Because they already had so much error in them. In the first epistle. So many warnings given to ministers, I'll pass over them all except one. Since it's near the end of your New Testaments, look at Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. There's about ten warnings to Timothy and Titus in the three pastoral epistles about men creeping in, especially false teachers. Some of those teachers are named by our brother Paul to warn Timothy specifically. But Titus chapter 3. Titus 3, 9. But avoid foolish questions. Titus 3, 9. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies. These are some simple, a cheat sheet for cults. I'm just going to, I'll go ahead and tell you. If you're, if you're reading this verse with understanding, you should just lay hold of it. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies. If you have, if you meet up with any denominational group or religion that even wants to mention a genealogy, check them off. There is no genealogy that matters. We believe in salvation by grace, not race. That's right. God hath made of one blood all nations of men that dwell on the face of the earth. Right. We are born of God, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. So if someone starts tracing back a genealogy, we blow them out. All you need is Titus 3.9. There's whole denominations that you can save yourself from having to read another page just by knowing as soon as you pick up that they are trying to trade. Did you know that there's a couple million people on earth right now that believe that the United States is, I get these confused sometimes, is Manasseh and that England is Ephraim and that we are the lost tribes of Israel and that the true sons of Isaac are the Anglo-Saxons. Because Isaac's sons sounds like Anglo-Saxons. Deep. Deep. They're called British Israelites sometimes. They're called the followers of Herbert W. Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God at other times. Deep. As soon as you find a genealogy, look what you're told. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law. That'll be another one. We've already mentioned it. That's Jewish legalism. For they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition, reject. Knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. After two admonitions, if he can't get his ideas straightened out according to the word of God, 
This is what Paul told Titus to do. There's many, many more. Now let's go back to Jude and see what it has to say about these false brethren that came in unawares. Snuck into the church. Do you remember what the uh, parable of the Lord Jesus Christ was about the tares? Who sowed the tares? The devil sowed the tares. And the servants wanted to know from the Lord of the field whether the tares should be plucked up or not. And the Lord said, no, wait until the time of harvest. Then we'll gather the wheat in, and then the angels can come and separate the tares from the wheat and cast them into everlasting fire. But tares sneak in, and they look like wheat. And they look like wheat too much for us to make the distinction. But the angels of God will not make a mistake. Jude says, for there are certain men crept in unawares. He knew about them. He knew that these churches had them. Who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. This brings us to a subject that isn't taught very much. This is the doctrine of reprobation. It's the opposite of election. If election is God's choice to save some, then there was a choice at the same time of not to save others. And it's called reprobation. There's actually verses in the Bible that say, how do you know you're not a reprobate? 2 Corinthians 13, 5. You want to examine yourself to make sure you're not one. Israel at times was called reprobate silver because God had rejected them for a period of time for their wickedness. This is a very unpopular doctrine. But we don't care if a doctrine is popular or not, or whether it meets with our ideas on what is fair or not. We just want to trust Scripture. And what it says here, that these false brethren come in, were before of old. Now that's a long time ago. When something is before of old, that means you go back as old as you can, and it was before that. In other places in the Bible where we read that that these decisions and the decree of God was made before the foundation of the world. That's before of old. Because when we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, when the purpose of God according to grace was given us in Christ before the world began, 2 Timothy 1.9, the Bible also tells us that there were certain names that were not written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Revelation 17.8 We do not believe any names are written down in the book of life during time. We believe that the names were written there before the world began because that's what the Bible teaches. But there were some names not written down there before the world began. Because there's only been one salvation covered so far, we believe that when when the Bible here uses the words, this condemnation, that it's in opposite... It's, it's an opposition to the salvation that's been under consideration. And that salvation, according to verse 3, was the common salvation, which all the elect have, in four phases. So the opposite of that is the condemnation that has been considered this far. Now, if we look at, say, verse 13, where it's still talking about these false teachers, we can see that the condemnation does extend all the way to an eternity of judgment. Verse 13, they are described as raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. These are not just misguided children of God. These particular ones that Jude is identifying here are reprobates. They were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Second Peter 2, which is the Holy Spirit's commentary on the book of Jude, says the same thing in verse 17, 2 Peter chapter 2, let me read it to you, 2 Peter 2, 17. Here's how it sounds over there in the Holy Spirit's commentary. These are wells without water, 
Sounds comparable to clouds without rain. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. The Lord made choice before the world began of those he was going to save and those he was not going to save. Some say that isn't fair. I say it isn't fair that he saved anyone. And that's what the Bible presents. Why would he save anyone? There is nothing intrinsically valuable about us that God needed us. He did not save any of the fallen angels. But no one gets crying or upset about them all being reserved in chains unto judgment and darkness to the judgment of the great day. We are elected to salvation in spite of our sins. But anyone that is ever condemned is condemned because of their sins. Twice we've sinned against God. We had our perfect chance for eternal life in the Garden of Eden. Where a perfect man in a perfect world with no evil tendencies or influences had but one commandment to keep. And he chose not to keep it. And he cast the entire human race under the condemnation of sin and death. Romans chapter 5 tells us very clearly that we are all accountable for that transaction in the Garden of Eden. Babies die because of the transaction in the Garden of Eden. Men died between Adam and Moses because of the condemnation from the Garden of Eden. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That's the rule. That's the doctrine of representation taught in Romans chapter 5. We all chose lies in the Garden of Eden. God told us the truth and gave us the tree of life. Satan lied to our first parents and they chose death and lies. When we had the perfect opportunity, we chose lies. If God ever gives us the truth, it is by pure grace and it is by pure mercy. Because we, from the beginning, when we were not even sinful, chose a lie. Since then, we have always chosen lies because we have followed the course of this world and we have been willingly subject to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. And by nature, we are just like the children of wrath. There is no difference. God must save us against our predilection and our desire for lies. That's why it says, but we are bound to give thanks all the way to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to, sancti- to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. I want you to see that passage. It's 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It is so weighty and so powerful in the but that opens up verse 13 and sets a great gulf between verses 9 through 12 and verse 13. who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Let's look at a description of mankind. What is hiding under your tongue and what is hiding under my tongue by nature? A lie. A lie. What's it called in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 19? The poison of asps. The poison of asps. That is what we are by nature. We love a lie. We speak lies. We live a lie. 
Every single one of us by nature, unless God reaches down and changes us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like He is able to change the wind and cause it to blow where He chooses, and we cannot affect the wind, neither can we affect the Spirit. The Spirit regenerates us and gives us a new heart that loves truth, while we still have a flesh that loves lies. Do you ever get in a discussion within yourself like Paul did in Romans chapter 7? Well, there's part of you that loves the truth and part of you still loves a lie. And you're fighting those two against each one another. But thanks be to God that giveth us the victory over this terrible condition we're in through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2 about the man of sin and the influence he has on his followers. Don't worry about who it is. That isn't the point right now. The point is verses 9 through 12, and I want your attention focused there. He's operating by the power of the devil himself who is the father of lies. Verse 9, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You look at those four verses and you say, those are hard verses. That is a hard saying. That God would send strong delusion upon men that they all might be damned who believe not the truth. They had their opportunity for truth. They had it twice. They had it once in Adam and they had it in their lives. They did not receive the love of the truth. Every man, no matter what language or dialect he's part of, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork, day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night utters knowledge. There is a sermon preached every single day, and all men are without excuse that there is a God of truth in heaven who has eternal power and a Godhead. Adam, creation, conscience, and preaching. They hear those different forms of truth, and they reject them. So God sends them strong delusion to believe even further lies, that they would believe something as dumb as this man of sin, and the deceivableness of unrighteousness of the devil works through him. This is false religion headquartered in the Roman Catholic Church and the popes of Rome, in case you've forgotten. But that isn't the point. The point is those hard verses in verses 9 through 12. But the truth of it is this. If it were not for the grace of God, we would be in verses 9 through 12. There's nothing superior about you or me that would have saved us from verses 9 through 12. We wouldn't have received the truth of the gospel on our own. It took the grace of God to give us that. And so we have verse 13, but as opposed to those that are damned and under God's judgment and under God's strong delusion and under God's intent for them to believe a lie, there's this distinction. But we, Paul and those Thessalonian saints that he knew were God's elect, but we are bound to give thanks all way to God for you. Paul didn't thank the Thessalonians that they believed the truth. Paul thanked God that the Thessalonians believed the truth. Right. We are bound to give thanks all way to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God makes the difference. Lydia had a difference made in her because God opened her heart that she attended unto the things that were spoken by the Apostle Paul. 
Acts 16, 14. If God had not opened her heart, she would not have attended to the things spoken by Paul. No man can come unto me, Jesus said, except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And that crowd that Jesus said that to twice in John chapter 6, all turned and walked away, except for a few, his twelve. And he turned to them and said, will ye go away also? And Peter said, we are sure, and we believe, that thou art the Christ, and to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of everlasting life. Do you know what Jesus said about that in Matthew 16, when Peter could say something like that? He said, flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father which is in heaven. That is the only way we would ever know such a thing, is God implanting that in, in us, in our new man, when he writes his commandments on our hearts. Amen. Look at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Before of old ordained to this condemnation. The devil and his angels are all ordained to this condemnation. And some men are ordained to this condemnation. When I said a few minutes ago, it is not fair that God saved anyone. What you're supposed to understand from that, and I believe I left it unfinished, was this. It's not fair. Salvation is not fair. It is grace. It is grace. It is mercy. Grace is never fair. Grace is undeserved merit. Don't let anybody tell you that grace is unmerited favor. It's demerited favor. We're just not neutral before God. That would be unmerited favor. We just haven't earned it. Grace is much more than that. Grace is demerited favor. We've done plenty enough for our condemnation, but instead of being condemned, we're saved. It's demerited favor. I get sick of hearing grace described as unmerited favor. I'm not neutral before God. The Bible doesn't describe me as neutral. The Bible tells, describes me as an enemy of God and a lover of the devil. And if it hadn't been for the stronger man, Christ Jesus, I would still be in the palace of the devil serving him with all my heart and all my might. Zach and I were the same kind of teenagers. And I'm very sorry that he was that kind of a teenager. I have my parents sitting here. By the grace of God, he saved us from our foolish rebellion. I hope you don't mind, brother. We're ugly sinners saved by grace. And we know if the Lord hadn't got us and arrested us and changed our heart, we'd be rent. Who knows? Only God knows. And I'm glad I don't know. The Lord saved us. Romans chapter 9 describes it this way. Verse 22. What if God... Willing to show his wrath. He is willing to do this. That we just read about in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, Not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Those three verses say that God had the human race before Him. Some of them are fitted to destruction for the praise and glory of His wrath and power. Some of them are fitted to be vessels of mercy. They're His elect for the praise of His glorious grace. 
And some of those elect came out of the Jews, and some of those elect came out of the Gentiles, and together they make up the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody will start to question this, and I know I'm going backwards. I know that I'm going backwards, and if I'm going backwards and it's bothering you, I'm sorry. I know I'm going backwards. Somebody will start to ask questions. They will ask in verse 19, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? If God is this sovereign, and if God is this powerful, that he can take a Pharaoh and prepare him for destruction, and if God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and all of God's compassion is on those he chooses to have compassion, then what difference does it make how I live? How can he find fault with me because my life just ends up being what his will was for it anyway? That's verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me. Paul knew that objection would come up. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Do you know what the answer is to somebody that asks questions like that? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay? Of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? That's how the apostle answered. The apostle did not answer by saying, Now wait a minute. Let me explain the doctrine of election a little gentler. Let me explain to you things so that you can accept it a little bit. He just said, Don't ask the question. You don't have the right to ask the question. We're the clay and he's the potter. This is the doctrine of the Bible, both testaments. You would not like, you would not have liked to have been born a Hittite, a Jebusite, a Girgashite, a Canaanite, a Perizzite, or any of the other Zites of the land of Canaan. Because God had no mercy for them. Right. His mercy was upon its people of Israel. You would not have liked to have lived in the generation of Noah and not had Noah as your last name. There were eight that had Noah for their last name and they were thankful to be inside the ark. But God shut the door and kept the rest out. They were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Jude 1 and verse 4. Romans chapter 9 is so powerful as it says, you know what God raised up Pharaoh for? God raised up Pharaoh his entire life. When Pharaoh was in the first grade and graduated into the second grade at the top of his class, it was because God was preparing Pharaoh to make sure he got to the throne so that he could be in the lead chariot of the Egyptian army in the middle of the Red Sea, that he could take his wheels off and watch him stain his royal tunic as his loins were loosed. Let's get real with the Bible. It's real true. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee. Therefore hath he mercy, on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Do not say God isn't fair. God gave us our chance in Eden. And God gives us another chance every day of our lives. In Eden we chose lies and sin and rebellion. And every day of our lives we choose sin, evil and rebellion. Except for the grace of God. Election is not fair. It's pure grace. There was election in the angelic host. Those who did not leave their first estate were elected to stay in it. And they are called the elect angels and they are called the holy angels. We will get to them Not on this day. The other angels that fell, he hath reserved in everlasting chains. There was no Savior provided for them whatsoever. Nobody complains for them. I am still waiting. 
to see the bleeding heart that wants to come and argue on behalf of the devil that he deserves another chance. Nobody does that. Nobody. Even Calvinists fear the doctrine of reprobation. The reason we sell the baker or give away or use the baker house edition of The Sovereignty of God written by Arthur Pink because that chapter on reprobation is kept in it. The Banner of Truth, which claims to be an organization that sells books worthy of the Puritans and the Reformers, will not even leave that chapter in the book. This is the Word of God. They fear it. Did God create anyone for judgment? Of course He did. If your theology admits a God with omniscience, if your theology has a God that is omniscient, then you end up at the very same place we're at. God knew who was going to reject him, and he was going to send them to hell. Therefore, why did he create them? For the praise of his wrath and power. Romans 9.22 Did God create anyone for judgment? How about the devil himself? What did he create him for, knowing that he was going to sin against him? And he created the lake of fire for him and his angels from the very beginning. God is the potter and we are the clay. And this is where we rest our case. You know, it's in Isaiah 45 as well. The same thing, the potter and the clay comparison. But it adds to it this way. It says, how can you ask your parents why you were born the way you were? You can't do it. It's out of line. It's out of place. If we take a lump of clay and we put it on a spinning wheel and we fashion something that's ugly and we set it over here and it says to us, why'd you make me so ugly? We just take that little vessel and we put it back in a five-gallon pail and add water. And it turns back to mud. He is the potter and we are the clay. We don't object, we just submit. Jude 1, 4, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. There's many more verses that could be raised in the subject, but let's go on. They're ungodly men. They turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Thessalonians 2, I want to go back and chase two thoughts. In 2 Thessalonians 2, men are damned to further lies because of rejecting initial truth. We would all be in that category and in that class if it were not for the grace of God. All men would be there. But by the grace of God, He separated us and changed our hearts and opened our hearts. Therefore, He gets all the glory on earth and in heaven. No one in heaven is going to be praising anyone else or themselves for getting there because it is entirely the work of the grace of God. Men are damned to lies in Second Thessalonians for rejecting truth. But others are chosen to belief of the truth in spite of that rejection of truth. The truth is that all would love lies without God's choice. The lovers of lies are damned for loving lies. The elect are saved in spite of loving lies. Some say it's not fair that God would not love Esau. Some say it's not fair that God would use Pharaoh that way. We should say, it is not fair that God would love Jacob. It is not fair that God would have mercy and compassion on any soul. Because it isn't fair. It's grace. It's grace. 
And until you understand the sovereignty and power of the potter over the clay, you can't appreciate grace. Grace has saved us. And grace will lead us home. Remember, God elects to salvation in spite of sin. God elects men to be saved in spite of sin. He only condemns to punishment because of sin. That is very fair and very gracious and very wonderful. They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. I've mentioned three great categories of false doctrine. Ritualism that Jesus had to deal with. The Pharisees with their whited sepulchers inside full of dead men's bones. Putting on an outward show. Sacramentalism. Go to church where it's just a charade in front of you and you just sit there and get up and walk out. There's no demand on your life. It's just ritualism. The second great error was Jewish legalism with Judaizers trying to take Christian Gentile believers back under the law of Moses, either with circumcision or with the Sabbath or with dietary laws or the whole law. The third category is this one right here. Carnal Christianity, the one we fight against today. Lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the life-changing authority and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the one. They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. Lasciviousness is your inclination to lust. Lasciviousness is lewdness. Lasciviousness is wantonness. Lasciviousness is intemperate, giving in to all the lust of your flesh and of your mind. They turn the grace of God into that. How do they do it? Some turn the grace of God into lasciviousness by teaching fatalism. Let us do good. Let us do evil. Excuse me. Let us do evil that good may come. Romans chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. There aren't very many fatalists around, so we'll forget them for the moment. Many others turn God's grace into lasciviousness by perverting man's freedom and giving him more freedom than the Bible gives him. They say God saved us by His grace. You know how Paul would address it in Romans 6? Because Romans 5... Romans 5 is so powerful, so complete, and so definitive that we are saved by the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ that he comes to Romans 6 and he says, what shall we say then? He's wondering if anybody would be led down this primrose path. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? If Jesus Christ and by his singular obedience has saved us and made us righteous and given us eternal life as opposed to the first Adam, what shall we then say to these things? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Today, the gospel is watered down as far as they possibly can without being called blasphemers and unbelievers in order to increase the crowd. You water down the claims of the gospel to get more people in. You don't really have to change your life. Come as you are. Live as you want. There's too much of that. We've watched it in the last 50 years. It's happened in my lifetime. I'm just, I'm just a child. But it's happened in my lifetime. When I was a boy, you could find a Bible thumper anywhere. Right. You could find hellfire preachers almost anywhere. You can hardly find them anymore. That's right. Because 2 Timothy 4 tells us they're going to go away. The time will come when people will no longer endure sound doctrine, but will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They want to be scratched. They want to be itched. According to their own lusts. And they shall turn their ears away from the truth and be turned into fables. 
And these men come along right here and they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. God's grace does not allow us to live any way we want. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness. We should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. The grace of God, when it's taught in truth, requires diligence out of us. Do you know, when people first hear about election, and they hear the way we present election, and how we exalt the sovereignty of God, they often think, well, you can just go ahead and live any way you want. Oh, no! Peter said there's only one way to make your calling and election sure. It's in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, and it lists eight things that you better have in your life. And if you don't have those things in your life, you're in trouble. And it's only if you're doing those eight things will you never fall. That's the only way you can lay a claim to election. Do you remember what the eight are? Add to your faith, virtue. And to your virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, patience. Yeah, we probably, I think it's patience, but uh, uh, let's just check it out, brother. It's going to get worse. It is. It already has got worse. You're older than I am. Faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance. Temperance, then patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. Those eight things. It says, if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. They, we get accused sometimes of being fatalists. Well, if salvation's the way you describe it, it doesn't matter how you live. Oh, the only way we know that we're God's elect is these eight things. Right. Wherefore, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall, but an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. That is how we take the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man, and put them together. God has saved us by His grace, but we prove it, we evidence it, we lay hold of it, we claim it. Amen. By doing the things He's told us to. And if we don't do them, we do not have the signs that we're God's elect. That's right. We have the signs that before of old we were ordained to this condemnation. It's the beauty. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you. We don't want the ditch of fatalism, and we don't want the ditch of humanism. We want to go right down the crown of the road on the yellow line and follow the Scriptures as they teach us. Carnal Christianity. Brethren, we're living in it. We're living in it. Water down the message. No claims. Listen, you know, you can live with somebody and go to the average church, and no one's going to say a thing. Don't get married. Why get married? You can live with somebody and go to the... Typical church today. If it's got a membership above 500, it'll probably let anybody that lives together be in members in that church and no one's going to say anything. They don't want to pick on you for that. They're not going to tell you what you should be watching on your television or what you shouldn't be watching in the movie house or music you're listening to or the kind of clothes you wear, the people you hang out with. They're not going to tell you things like that because that shrinks crowds. They're just going to tell you the seven ways to make money, the seven ways to be happy, the seven ways to have a better marriage, the seven ways to feel good about yourself, And stuff like that. That's just what we're in today. Fables for itching ears. Instead of, what's the cure in 2 Timothy 4? Preach the word. Preach the word. So we preach the word. And the word puts us down in the dirt. In the dust. Where we have to be humbled before the God of heaven. We're clay and he's the potter. We preach the Word. It warns us about false teachers. It tells us there's only one doctrine. We can't say, well, we're all working for the same place. No, there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And it tells us that. And it's sound doctrine, and they won't endure it anymore. 
And so they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. Lasciviousness is just living the way you want to according to your lust. And they turn the grace of God into allowing that. And that is not the truth. Because the gospel of the grace of God teaches us to deny ourselves and to live soberly and righteously in this present world. The past time of our lives should have been enough to suffice us in all the issues of sin and wickedness. Jesus taught the cost of discipleship in taking up your cross daily to follow me. If you're going to truly follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a cross to take up daily. That is not turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. That's taking the grace of God and teaching discipleship. Do you know what the mercy of God should teach us? The mercy of God should not teach us, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The mercy of God teaches us, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service because the grace of God was so much we should easily be able to give him a living sacrifice of our lives by denying the flesh to do that which is acceptable and approved in his sight by living holy lives. Ritualism, most of we, we don't have much ritualism facing us. That, those are Catholics. Catholics in churches that want to look like Catholics. Ritualism, sacramentalism, a show, no inward work of grace, no pressure on the inward work of grace. Then there's Jewish legalism. We run into it from time to time. Then there's carnal Christianity where we see everywhere and you know that it's what's fighting inside your soul. That you want, you want to have your cake and eat it too. We fight it every day. Carnal Christianity. God saved me. I know I love him. Can I have this little pet sin over here? Do I have to get rid of everything? Brother Crosby is so... St- Come on, I'm not going to tell him. I'll just keep this little part of my life. And so we, we're carnal Christians. We try to blend a little bit of carnality, a little bit of lasciviousness, along with the grace of God. And that is denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ has called us to mortify our flesh, put to death those members that are in our bodies, to take up our cross daily and to follow Him. We deny the Lord Jesus Christ by our works, even while we're professing Him with our lips, if we live a carnal life. We cannot turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. The whole basis for Baptist baptism is that when we are buried in the waters of baptism, we are burying our old man and the old lifestyle of a sinful man to rise to walk in newness of life. When we are resurrected from that water, we are rising to walk in a new life. If ye then be risen with Christ, referring to baptism, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. This is what the grace of God teaches. And so the great warning of the epistle of Jude is carnal Christianity. We're going to get into it. The Israelites were carnal. They lusted after things in the wilderness. They were not content with God being with them day and night. And we must fight against that ourselves. We must fight in it here. We must fight against carnal Christianity in our hearts. We must fight against carnal Christianity in our homes. And we must fight against carnal Christianity in our church. May God have mercy on us.